You're listening to SBS News. Ed Husek was sworn in earlier this year as the first ever Muslim cabinet minister holding a pink Quran. The son of Bosnian Muslim immigrants, he's risen up the Labour ranks, but faced Islamophobia both inside and outside politics along the way, and says he'll continue to work to stop it happening to others. This podcast celebrates the most diverse parliament Australia has seen and explores the long and tough path it's taken for many to change the tide. I'm political reporter Krishani Danji, and on this episode of Our House, Ed Husick talks about what it was like to first run for parliament in the shadow of 9-11, how parliament has changed since, what it means to him, and what he'd like to see for other young migrant families in Australia. Minister, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. You've been here for more than a decade now. Mm-hmm. How much do you think this place has changed? I think uh, the, the focus on making sure that the parliament reflects the community it represents, I think that's been the biggest, for me, the biggest change. And a willingness to talk openly about it. I, I always felt as a first-time uh, MP, and particularly because there'd been always a lot of focus on my background, I'd always felt like it had been... The danger was that you'd be stereotyped or pigeonholed. And what I began to appreciate over the course of time is that it's an important conversation to have uh, because what you're doing is it's not about uh, yourself, it's about the people that follow and that you're opening up avenues, pathways for people to also have an opportunity to serve and represent. Talking about being pigeonholed, If we go into that a little bit further, what do you think is the risk of someone from a minority background being characterised by that background rather than being characterised by the community that they're supposed to represent? I I, I didn't want to ever be um, stereotyped as a Muslim MP. I'm an MP who is Muslim, right? And it was funny because when I first got elected, the, the big criticisms against me was that I'd be this sort of agent that would introduce Sharia law into Australia and, and you know, the my, my faith would influence my decisions and this might not be good for the community. And yet I saw other people in the conservative uh, side of politics use that as an exact reason as to why they had to make decisions in the way that they did. I always made decisions, well, my faith is important to me. I made them on the basis of what I thought was right for the community. And so I had people who said to me I shouldn't be voting... Uh, the way that I did vote on marriage equality on that basis. And I said, no, that's not... The law should not be used in a way where majority... Like, majority groups make their decision about how minority groups and communities live their lives. And, uh, my big thing is about giving people the space to live their lives in the way that they want, and if it's not causing harm, then it shouldn't be an issue. Can I ask, then, where do you think the line is drawn between faith and, and politics in terms of, you know, where, where a secular society or a secular mm. government, how much influence does faith or should faith have in that? I haven't worked out the way to, to best address that, if I can be... I, I know a lot of people in politics want to be able to say that they've thought it and they've got the answer and all that. That, that is a, your, your question is extraordinarily hard to answer, why I ask it. I know, you get paid the big bucks for, well, as, oh, sorry, you probably want to get, I was just about to say, you probably want to get paid the big bucks for it. Um, it is a very tough question to answer. I, 
there are a lot of elements of my faith that do guide me because of my faith has taught me to think beyond self and uh, and to have a community approach and to think about you know things wider than 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 the way that you operate as an individual. So um, I've looked at it that way, but I've never wanted that. I, I think I have always operate on the basis that faith is strongest when you find it, not when someone pushes it on you. So it's up to other people to make those those calls. Um, but I just I do want people to feel like that they can practice their faith. And obviously, religious freedom is a um, vexed political issue uh, because of the way that it yeah, intersects in different people and different like within the community. But I do respect that, and I do respect the people who may not necessarily profess to be um, to have a faith that drive them. They have their values too, and I've said that in the, the very first speech that I gave, my first speech to Parliament. I made that reflection then, and it's consistent in the way that I operate now. In 2004, you were campaigning for the seat of Greenway, where, and you sort of alluded to this before, but there were flies around saying that you were a devout Muslim. How did that make you feel? At that point in time, I was stunned because I always thought that it was never really faith. Never growing up, like no one really cared who you were. Like there were people, you know, from all different walks of life. Friends who were Buddhist, Sikh, um, obviously Islamic, like myself. But no one really cared. Like we all understood that at different points in time, um, someone's version of Christmas occurred. You know, as it were, that's how we described it. You know, and and you just respected that. Um, and then it became a big issue. And I, I think I was a little bit naive not expecting this to crop up as an issue post-September 11 because I effectively ran three years after one of the most traumatic events in terms of most Western-leaning societies and um, uh, and, and it sort of was uncomfortable to deal with but I was naive to think that it wouldn't be an issue and I guess I should have probably given more thought at that, that point in time. And how much progress do you think has been made since then? It's been big. Uh, I'm not saying it's com- that the journey's complete. I still think Islamophobia is an issue. People do have to contend with it. Um, uh, you saw Fatima this week in, in making her um, first speech address that as well. But again, it's still an issue. And I've seen the value of diversity in Parliament is not just to celebrate different faces, but what you do with it. And so in the course of the last term in particular, I looked at the impact of the growth in far-right extremism in fueling Islamophobia, for instance. And then we saw it also play out with Chinese Australians through the course of COVID being unfairly, Asian Australians being targeted unfairly, and that was a real problem here and in other parts of the world uh, as well. And from my perspective, you know, I I took a, um, a view that I had a responsibility to keep the pressure or the focus on a, a serious, concrete response, particularly coming out of um, Christchurch, where we never had a serious discussion about, you know, the fact that we had an Australian go to another country uh, and kill 51 people in Christchurch in a very, um, like that, that was a sort of hate speech-driven moment in time that had transformed itself from speech to action uh, in a very dramatic way and. It took a long time, I think, for government agencies to recognise this was an issue and to recalibrate. Um, and even when they talk about extremism now, what's, what I find you know, odd is that the first 
focus is not on far-right extremism that has dominated. It's been more about, well, this is what's happening with religious-based extremism, as, as it's referred to now, um, but it always comes back to my faith, people in my faith. That's the starting point, and then go on to far-right extremism, whereas I would have thought the big focus is, at the moment, people have seen the way that it has expressed itself, uh, and you know, in many respects it's driven for what we've seen offshore in the United States, for example, a lot of those incidents are driven by far-right extremism. How do you want to keep sort of changing that narrative or, or bringing these issues out more in focus? Well, I think uh, there has now been some movement. The agencies have recognised that as an issue and, uh, and are dealing with it. Um, I don't think the coalition has, uh, has, has embraced this as thoroughly as they should they should recognize it's an issue and they should drive it out uh, of their ranks uh, as well um, there have been on occasion i will give credit to some elements of the national party for example where they've stared this down uh, and dealt with it but you know we can do a lot more during the election campaign and then afterwards when the prime minister said it was a testament to a multicultural australia that someone called albanese could take the top job do you think that's really fair? I mean, perhaps in the 70s that would have been a really big deal, but now that we've seen a lot of the positions of power being held by people from Anglo-European backgrounds, that includes him. Well, let me put it to you this way, if you don't mind me um, putting another question back to you. How many people of an Italian background have been Prime Minister? Well, one, but is it as big a jump... Some- well, as he says it is. But, but can we, um, before we move on to the next thing, can we appreciate how long it's taken for Italian Australians to be in a position like that? I, I absolutely take on board the point you're, that, that underpins the question, and I do think it. We this is the next big challenge of broadening it out, but it shows you how long that journey has been. Is it good enough, though? I mean, in the UK at the moment we're seeing a battle between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, which is a very different sort of atmosphere to what we've seen here. I think other countries have dealt with this better than we have, to be frank, in terms of parliamentary representation. If you look in the US and the UK, um, you know, they, they seem to have... It, it has not been as big an issue as what it has been here and how difficult it has been. My intent is to show it has been a long journey and we've got a long way to go... But I do not want to overlook the moment and that for Italian Australians who had to cop a lot for a long period of time and couldn't speak up about it, could not speak up about it. Um, and now I do think the challenge is to have people from a non-European, absolutely. And we do need to see more people, particularly from within our region, um, not just within in um, Southeast Asia, but also within the Pacific as well, like we have a lot of people that moved here from Pacific, from our Pacific neighbours, and we we do need to see more more representation in our parliament. We've got a, a way to go. I just I don't want us to get to a point where we go, okay, well you had your time, like now it's this. Like no, everyone, the the parliament is big enough. We can accommodate more. We should do more. ask you about migration. Do you think that Australia's migration policy is fair? I mean, many Australians like your parents uh, have come here for a better life and yet over the past decade at least, 
we've seen, well, we've sought to let in less and less. Is that fair or do you think that's a bit cruel? I think uh, we do need to have a rethink about approach and I think we are looking at that now and that while there has been a case made about more skilled migration, I, our side of politics, and I've certainly been concerned, that using it as a temporary basis and not allowing people the option for permanent migration has been a shortcoming. Uh, I'm, you know, I am indirectly a beneficiary of a migration approach that favoured permanent migration and it allowed people to get families set up and, and then have a, a say and a share and a stake in the future of the country. So we are looking at more permanent pathways um, for that. And and I do think where we can uh, do so, um, to be able to open the door to parents and family reunion more would be would be good. But again, we've got a, there's a whole host of other decisions that underpin uh, that and some thinking that needs to underpin that. But I think we can. We are a We've celebrated our multi- multiculturalism, but that's got to be refreshed and renewed. And so I think it's appropriate at this point with the new government to rethink that. By an extension of that, should our refugee policy and our refugee intake also be increased? I, I think, well, we, we did make moves to increase and we pressured the former government to do so. And I think where we can um, increase the intake and help people out of terrible circumstance, we should. And I still think we've got a lot to do. We, we've announced some measures to help with people suffering in the Ukraine, but there's also our commitments to our friends in Afghanistan that we've got to honour. And I hope that we, and I trust that we will do that. Um, and so where people are, are in harm's way in particular, we should you know, find a way to make that happen. Um, having said that too, like there's, you know, it's also balanced by, if you look at the internally displaced, size of internally displaced communities... Yeah, there'll be so much that Australia can do, so we need to encourage a lot of other nations to do similar to us in opening the doors too. So, um, yeah, I think we should keep an open mind. Have you ever felt a bit of a clash with your ethnic background or have you ever sort of questioned your cultural identity? Yeah, because we're... Uh, who, who are we? You know, like we can't go back to the country of our parents and be embraced there. And there's sometimes been, and Sally Situ actually, in a, like her, she was a very powerful first speech, reflected on this as well in growing up as the kid of migrants uh, in another country. Who are you? You know, identity is important. And uh, in shaping the way that you relate to the, to the world around you, and so it is, you know, that, that is something that all migrant kids or who were once migrant kids, I cannot claim that status obviously now in my 50s, but, um, but, but that is an issue. And what sort of a legacy would you like to leave? Well, on that, um, well, in terms of these type of issues, I always said from the, from the very first words I spoke in Parliament, I just want to make it easier for people of my background for the next ones to follow. And Anne Ali. And I have thought about that a lot. Anne has copped a lot more than I have. I mean, it's weird because she says, no, no, you have. And it's like, well, we're not actually comparing ledgers here. But um, uh, but then to be able to see you know, Fatima be able to wear the hijab in the Senate as well, that's like a, this is a big moment in time. Um, and it'll also be good to see Sikhs and Sikh turbans 
uh, and headwear uh, be worn in the in the chambers too um, through representatives that get elected in due course. So, yeah, making it easier for the ones that follow um, uh, has been something that I've has been meant a lot to me. Minister, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Our House is a podcast series for SBS News and interviews politicians from multicultural backgrounds who are changing the face and culture of Parliament. Need a few minutes to reset? Great Minds is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.